The following sermon was delivered on October 18, 2020 at Antioch Presbyterian Church, a mission work of Calvary Presbytery of the Presbyterian Church in America in Woodruff, South Carolina. Organizing pastor Dr. Joseph A. Piper Jr. preached this sermon entitled The Law and Gospel on 1 Timothy 1, 6-11. For more information about Antioch Presbyterian Church, please visit antiochpca.com or contact us at info at antiochpca.com. May the Lord bless you as you receive gracious instruction from His Word. Well, I know it's not the case with uh, any of our families here, but we all know those families where you have uh, uh, a mother that is overly kind, a father who is overly strict, and the awful confusion that that creates for children. His mom is excusing and covering over everything, and dad's laying down the law for everything, and the children are caught in between, we could say, law and gospel. Now that little analogy is exactly what's going on today in the Christian community. For there is great confusion today, particularly in the part of the country where we live, between law and gospel. What is the relationship of law to gospel? What is the relationship of gospel to law? That's a very important issue. We get confused when the apostle says that we're not under the law but under grace. It doesn't mean for a manner of how we would live before God, but for our salvation, it's by grace alone and not by law keeping. But does that annul the role of law? So on the one hand, we have those that say it's all of grace and they are lawless in their behavior. If they believe in Jesus, it doesn't really matter what they do. We're under grace gospel, not law. On the other hand, we have those that are very confused about law and think that we actually have to earn some acceptance with God. We can contribute in some way to even our justification with God uh, through law keeping. So it's a very important issue for us to understand, as it was in the Ephesian church. And this is the issue now that Paul was addressing in our text this afternoon. Let me remind you what's going on. Paul is writing this book to help Timothy in the ministry of organizing the church at Ephesus. And the first thing he has to deal with is false teaching. And he will deal with worship. He will deal with order and officers and many other details in the life of the church. But he first addresses this matter of false teaching because in the church at Ephesus, there were these false teachers. Now, Paul had warned them. You remember in Acts chapter 20, Paul had warned them as he had met with them on his uh, missionary journey that after he left, he says in verse 29, I know that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock, and from among your own selves, men will arise speaking perverse things to draw away the disciples after them. That in Ephesus had come to pass. Paul has left Timothy there now to address this false teaching. Now, it manifests itself in a completely wrong-headed approach to the Old Testament. Um, the false teachers were looking at the Old Testament almost like a puzzle book following uh, a Jewish tradition where they would read genealogies and they would pick out a name and then they would tell stories about that person. A lot, probably easier way to read Chronicles than the way we do it, but anyway. So they were simply adding to scripture, uh, showing themselves to have this great insight into uh, the mind of God, these mysteries of religion. 
And as such, they approach the law then itself, the old covenant book, as, as well as the moral law of God as kind of a trivial thing. It really wasn't important to them. They considered themselves, in a sense, to be above it. They didn't really need it because they were the masters of the Old Testament. And Paul said that their teaching would lead only to um, spiritual destruction, not for growth in grace, not for the administration of God, which is by faith. He then directs our attention in verse 5 to what is the goal of gospel instruction? What is the goal then of the law? And he says, it is love to God and our neighbor from a uh, pure heart, a good conscience, and a sincere faith. Now, having set the goal before us in our text, he returns now to how the false teachers are abusing the law in order to teach us the right use of the law. And here the Holy Spirit shows us that when the law is used properly and not abused, it produces good results in the life of the Christian. When the law is used properly and not abused, it produces good fruit, good results in the life of the Christian. So we're going to consider three things, the abuse of the law, uh, a use of the law, and the relation of law and gospel. Well, in verses 6 and 7, Paul addresses their abuse now of the law. For some men, strained from these things, have turned aside to fruitless discussion, wanting to be teachers of the law, even though they do not understand either what they are saying or the matters about which they make confident assertions. Now, once again, some men, he's using the indefinite pronoun as he did earlier, as he talks about um, um, certain men in verse 3 there in Ephesus. So it wasn't a great group in the church, but it was a small group of men that were trying to become very influential. Notice the first thing that Paul says about them is that they are strayed. Now, from what are they straying? Well, you'll notice that he's looking back at that goal. They're straying from the goal of all sound gospel teaching, which is love for God and our neighbor that comes out of a pure heart, a good conscience, and a sincere faith. They took their eye off the ball. They're straying away. And what happens when you stray? Then you completely miss the mark. So having strayed, they've turned aside to fruitless discussion. When I was meditating on this phrase this afternoon, I remember the time when we were in Philadelphia, and my wife had uh, Joey uh, with her, and he was probably, what, three or four, three, I think. And suddenly there's this gasp, and a lady cries out. And here is Joey, who had strayed away from his mother, on the outside of the escalator, holding on and going up. <laughs> you folks that know him can mention that to him. So he strayed from where he should have been, was right by his mother's side. And because he strayed, then he wandered into serious difficulty. That's the language that Paul is using here. It's important for us as we read the Bible. It's important for you young men who will be preparing for uh, the ministry that we must keep our eye in our private lives to read the Bible. You must keep your eye on your own heart, on the purpose of Scripture, which is to know and love God and to, and to love your neighbor, to keep your heart pure to keep a, a good conscience, to 
continue to come to Christ by a sincere, unfeigned, un- unhypocritical faith. That's the only way we grow in truth. It's the only thing that keeps us from error. The same is true for you men then that will teach the word. You must never forget that the goal isn't your advancement, your honor, your reputation, your salary. No, the goal must be the honor of God. The goal must be that the people to whom you minister will follow you in loving God and in loving your neighbor. To stray from that is invariably to fall into error. Now, these men were quite pompous and arrogant. Paul really describes them as fools. I turn aside to this fruitless discussion, which you remember is um, the genealogies, uh, where they make up stories. Uh, they get into a lot of asceticism, as we'll see later in Timothy, forbidding marriage and certain types of food. They weren't like the Judaizers, but they were simply adding to Scripture. Again, much of what we experience here in the part of the country where we live. And they wanted to be teachers of the law. They wanted to be recognized as rabbis. They wanted that distinction and honor in the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. But in reality, what does Paul say about them? Although they want to be teachers of the law, they do not understand either what they're saying or the matters about which they make confident assertions. I think in the first place, what they're saying, they don't even have the basic vocabulary. They don't really understand the words that they are parroting, that they've gotten out of books or from other Jewish teachers. They're babbling, trying to appear so erudite and learned. But even worse, if it could be worse, making dogmatic assertions about things of which they're completely ignorant. And that's the anatomy of a, of a false teacher. Uh, you can pretty much trace it back. You know, Hodge said one time that um, he never knowingly taught anything new. That's not bad, is it? Because the men that want to teach new things, that want to have a little novelty, that want to have a new insight, are so often straying from the truth and falling into useless speculation. And you can look at these people then. They are trumpeting their particular little nuance, their, their new insight into the gospel. Or even in the major cults, not just the false teachers that we experience and our own communions and fellowship. But uh, we look at uh, Jehovah's Witnesses or Mormonism or Islam or whatever. It's the same thing. You had a, a teacher somewhere along the way that had new and keener insight. And, you know, it's always much easier to attract people to a lie. When I was in high school, I had to take a psychology course. I learned two things. The first one was, don't do anything serious after lunch because all the blood's in your stomach. The other one was more important. The bigger the lie, the more gullible the people. We see that, don't we? You drive by these cultic churches or Roman Catholic places or, or Islam or whatever, and they're crowded. Why are they crowded? Because they cater to men's pride and vanity coming out of their own pride and vanity. So we get the anatomy of a false teacher here. We see what to avoid. We saw two weeks ago in the first sermon that um, we can judge this tree by its fruit. And we can see that again now. You can judge it by the behavior of the teachers. And again, it's important for us as 
fathers and husbands in our families, as men that will be office bearers in the church or pastors that we don't hold it over the congregation, but that we're humble, that we're not seeking this place for ourselves. So Paul exposes their abuse of the law and then turns our attention to a proper use of the law in verses 8 through 10a. But we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully, realizing the fact that law is not made for a righteous person, but for those who are lawless and rebellious, for the ungodly and sinners, for the unholy and profane, for those who kill their fathers or mothers, for murderers and immoral men and homosexuals and kidnappers and liars and perjurers and whatever else is contrary to sound teaching. Paul now makes this grand assertion, we know that the law is good. He says that in our, we read that in the meditation in in Romans 7, 12 and 16. The law is good. He is reflecting what we just read in Psalm 119, and not just in this psalm, but in so many. But in verse 129, your testimonies are wonderful, therefore my soul observes them. I opened my mouth wide and panted. I longed for your commandments. I cried with all my heart, answer, O Lord, I will observe your statutes. The law is good. Paul wants us to understand that, that there is nothing at all evil about the law. Now, we need to realize that Paul has used law already now in a couple of different ways. As he talked about the false teachers, they're wanting to be old covenant teachers. They want to teach the law, particularly, though, as it has come through Moses. They want to be recognized then as experts in the Old Testament. They want to be like rabbis. Now, Paul focuses here on the biggest thing that they're missing is that in their teaching, they're actually abusing the moral law of God. So now he says the law is good. He's talking about particularly the Ten Commandments and all that is revealed then in Scripture by the Spirit based out of those ten glorious words. The Ten Commandments are basically God's ten um, basic moral principles. Every law in Scripture... Every moral law, every ceremonial law, every judicial law comes out of those ten words. And Paul wants us to know, the Spirit wants you to know, the law is good. But if it's good, it then, he says, must be used lawfully. Making a play on words, that the law can only be good if it's used according to God's intention, God's revelation, not according to the speculation and the imagination of men. So he says, if you use it lawfully, you are realizing the truth, the fact that the law is not made for a righteous person. Now, we consider the uses of the law, and we'll say that there are theologians say there's three uses to the law. The first use is to convict men and women, boys and girls of sin, they might come to Christ Jesus. The second use is to restrain sin in society and culture. And the third use is to direct the believer then in how he or she should live. So when Paul says the law used lawfully is not made for the righteous, 
he is saying here that because uh, he's, he's dealing with these men who have abused the law and they don't think they need the law, you see. They're skipping over the moral precepts of God as they think they're going into the deeper things of Moses. And they consider themselves to be righteous and, so to speak, above the law. And Paul is basically using some sarcasm here. It's not made for the righteous. It's not made for those that have arrived and have got all these insights. And what he does is refer to the first use of the law. That's why in your outline it says a use of the law. Now he's going to end with the third use of the law in our third point. But right here he lays down this very foundational truth that the law doesn't make someone righteous but exposes our wickedness and unrighteousness. And so he describes the law. He says that it's for those who are lawless and rebellious. Then for the ungodly and sinners and for the unholy and profane. And then he goes into uh, five of the last six commandments in the second table. Now, in the, we have these three pairs. The first pair summarizes all of the law's use for the unrighteous. Those who are lawless and rebellious. The law is to expose our lawlessness and our rebellion. That is what we are in our human nature. We are rebels against God. We long for our own autonomy. We will not be ruled by God in any way whatsoever. And so we live before God lawless and, re and rebels, wanting nothing to do with him. Nothing to do with his standards. And so the first pair describes exactly the nature of every person by birth. Now the next pair, ungodly and sinners, basically looks at the first two commandments. And the third pair, unholy and profane, look at commandments three and four. Now how do we get there to that? Well notice then, after unholy and profane, you've got this very specific list. It goes now to uh, commandments 5 through 9. That's the key to help us read backwards now and see exactly what is Paul saying. So we'll start with the third pair. He says that the law is for the unholy and the profane. Now, those who profane are those who profane the name of God and the law, the day of God. So in Leviticus 19.12, we find a form in the Septuagint, the Greek translation, of the Old Testament, of this word uh, profane. You shall not swear falsely by my name so as to profane the name of your God. I am the Lord. And of course, uh, the prophets, particularly Ezekiel and Jeremiah, indict the people for profaning the day of the Lord. And so those who are categorized here as unholy, unwilling to recognize God's honor in his name and day, and profane it, are violating the third and fourth commandments. Then we back up to the middle pair, ungodly and sinners. The term sinners uh, in its um, non-negative form was a term that was used uh, for uh, those who um, were God-fearers. Uh, and ungodly then describes those who are idolaters. Now, the God-fearer is the Gentile who had come to believe in the true God and wanted to serve him according to his word. And, of course, the 
uh, idolater was the one who refused to have God as his God. So Paul seems to speak in these three pairs. First, a general indictment of all people as lawless rebels. And then an indictment, ungodly uh, and um, sinners, those who are violating commandments one and two. And then for unholy and profane, those who are violating commandments three and four. So he goes to the first table of the law. Then he goes on this very specific list of commandments five through nine. By pulling out from each commandment a very hideous part of it. For those who kill their fathers are murderers. Well, that comes out of uh, Exodus 21:15. That if a child strikes his parents, he is in fact guilty of breaking the fifth commandment. And so the one particular sin is put for all the violations of that commandment. Of course, the murderer is the one who uh, kills uh, out of Anger, that's also in Exodus 21. Immoral, and that's the sixth commandment. Immoral men and homosexuals. Immoral men also comes out of Exodus 21. It's fornicators. Those who enter into those relationships outside the bond of marriage are those who violate the bond of marriage. Homosexuals, we go back to Leviticus uh, to see the condemnation of that as a violation of the seventh commandment. Kidnappers in Exodus 21, one of the violations of the Eighth Commandment and stealing, and liars and perjurers, a violation of the Ninth Commandment. Now, perhaps you're wondering, why doesn't Paul deal here with the Tenth Commandment? Because the very first pair addresses this matter of contentment. The, the, the first and the tenth are like bookends, you see. And uh, the tenth, in a sense, summarizes all the law, but particularly our idolatry. And so if we're going to be lawless and rebellious, then we want nothing to do with God or his ways. And we will then be rebels and discontent with God. So Paul lists out these commandments for us to show then the nature of all people outside of Christ. But I want you to notice how he does this so specifically. He doesn't... uh, you know, we just, read the, we just read these commandments. It's important that we read them. It's important we know them and memorize them and understand them. But what's Paul doing? Paul's preaching here. And you see, he knew from his own experience. Or he knew from the experience of the rich young ruler. When Jesus said, keep the commandments, what does he say? I've done them from my youth. And then he doesn't mention the 10th commandment. When he lists the commandments, he says, go sell your possessions and give to the poor. And the man turns away because he is full of covetousness and does not come to Christ. Paul said that was his testimony. He thought that by the law he was blameless until the law said you shall not covet. And when the law came into his greed and covetousness, that's when he became convicted of the fact that he was a lawbreaker. And this is how we're to use the law. Now we see when Paul says the law is not made for the righteous, but for the lawless and rebellious, that role that law needs to play in our evangelism. First, the general principle. The gospel cannot be good news until a person knows the bad news. That all have sinned and are falling short of the glory of God. There's such little law work today in our evangelism. And there needs to be. We need to work with the people to whom we witness to help them begin to understand their need for 
the Savior. But we must not remain in generalities. See, that's what Paul is showing us here in the second place then, is that we must be specific with people. We must isolate. We we need to know them and to know uh, where their particular sins and corruptions lie that we might, like a very expert physician, uh, does it hurt here? You see, many years ago in, in Houston, I had a couple that wanted to be married in our church. We by God's grace, built a beautiful building. And one of the things we wanted was people to come off the street. And it happened a lot. So I always say, well, come and we'll meet and we'll talk about it. And so they came. And so I'm talking to them about sin. And, uh, you know, they, they thought they were really pretty decent young people. They, uh, they didn't see any need. So I said, tell me, it seems to me that you two are living together. Is that correct? Well, yeah. You know what the Bible says about that? No, the fornicators don't go to heaven. Explained it. This never happened in my life before or afterwards. Immediately the spirit brought them under conviction of sin. They sat there and God saved them at that very meeting. And today he is an elder in a PCA church. It says bringing the law specifically. You must learn to do that in your evangelism. But let's move closer to home. How about ourselves? Here we see how we can use the law to search our own lives. That's the paradigm that Paul is giving us. And I encourage you to do this. That it should be part of your regular practice that you take the larger catechism exposition of the law, the shorter catechism exposition of the law, and pray over it and meditate it for the spirit to search your heart and expose to you the particular areas of which you're blind and and those needs that you have. You might flee back to Christ for pardon, but also for power. It's a particularly good thing if you don't do it regularly to do that in preparation for coming to the Lord's table in two weeks. So use the law in your life as well, because in every one of us, there's yet a remnant of sin, isn't there? And there's sins that we don't even know are there. And it says the law comes to us specifically, particularly in that exposition of the larger catechism, that the Spirit will convict us of sin and continue his work of mortification in our lives. So we see the abuse of the law, and we see here the a proper use of the law. And then what Paul does, and it's, it's really quite amazing, is he shows us then this relation of law and gospel, or law and grace. Now, the end of verse 10, Paul does something he almost always does when he gives these lists. So he'll summarize in the second half of that verse, and whatever else is contrary to sound teaching. You remember how he does that in Galatians and uh, in Corinthians? So I'm being specific for specific reasons, but understand this is not an exhaustive list. He does that here. But notice how he changes now the focus. He says, and whatever else is contrary to law? No. Whatever else is contrary to sound teaching? The word sound teaching is just the opposite of the word that he used earlier in the book to talk about the false teaching of these men who were teaching uh, strange doctrines. Uh, The word there is heterodoxy, and this is the word uh, uh, from which we would get orthodoxy, but it actually means uh, sound in the way of healthy. Not even producing health, but just sound, healthy truth. And Paul is saying, now he's bringing together, you see, law and gospel. He 
He's now talking to Christians about the use of the law of God. And he's picking up on what he said back in uh, verse 5. When he says the goal of our instruction literally is commandments. The goal of our commandments is love. He now is reflecting that in the gospel, well, we still have commandments. And he brings law and gospel together now is that anything that is contrary to sound teaching and sound teaching, and you see, embraces the law of God. Anything contrary to that then would be contrary to the law of God. Now, it's very important we see then that what Paul is getting at here is that when we come to Christ, the law that has a new role in our lives, it no longer is a way by which we're trying to appease God. No longer is it a way that under which we remain under God's condemnation. But now we come to the third use of the law, that it is indeed, as the psalmist says, a light to a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. It is the word of God to guide me in the way of obedience. Now, Paul puts this together for us in Romans uh, chapter 8, where he uh, reflects on the freedom that we have in Christ. There's therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the Spirit is life in Christ Jesus, has set you free from sin and law of sin and death. For what the law could not do, weak as it was through the flesh, God did, sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh as an offering for sin. He condemned sin in the flesh so that the requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. So he says the law brings you to Christ. But then the law brings you to Christ. So as you walk now by the spirit and not in the flesh of your sinful nature, you're able to fulfill the law. That's what he's saying here. Whatever else is contrary to sound teaching. In other words, part of our gospel instruction then is how do we live? How are we to live as Christians? How are we to live in thanksgiving to God for what he's done for us. And there's no war, is there, you see, between law and gospel, law and grace. Now, the law by itself can do us no good. It only condemns us. It has no promise of life to a sinner. But when the person who's born again then learns the law of God, they have the power of the Spirit at work in them they have the promise of pardon in Christ Jesus because they will never obey God perfectly. And they begin to walk in Christ according to the law. So I hope you see that there is no conflict for the Christian between law and gospel, law and grace. But look how Paul exalts in gospel. And we must always exalt in gospel. Look where he ends then according to the glorious gospel of the blessed God with which I have been entrusted. It's not law and gospel on equal footing. The law by itself condemns. The gospel enables us to be pardoned of our transgressions and to begin to serve God according to the law. But it's the gospel that's glorious. He calls it the gospel, the glorious gospel of blessed God. 
Now, this term blessed is not the term normally used in doxologies when we talk about God blessed forever and ever. This word blessed is only used by twice by Paul here in the pastorals to refer to God. It's the word that the Bible uses to refer to the blessing of the Christian who lives in the richness of God's pleasure and glory. And so the Beatitudes, this is the word, blessed is the person. Our Psalm 1, blessed is the man. And why does Paul change this here? Because what he says is that in God, blessed forever, is the fountain of all blessing that comes to us in the gospel. The gospel is this waterfall, this torrent, this tidal wave of God's goodness that is poured out on sinners who are dead in their sins and trespasses. That's why it is so glorious. And I hope as you sit here this afternoon that you have experienced the glory of the gospel. That freedom of conscience that comes in the gospel. The new life that is yours in the gospel. And you revel in the gospel. The apostolic gospel, Paul says, the gospel with which he was entrusted. A gospel with full authority. And we'll come to that in the next section then. But do you revel in the gospel? If you sit here this afternoon and you can't talk about the glorious gospel, then more than likely you've not yet been saved. Because you've been saved. You know that you've been saved from corruption and bondage and guilt and misery. Yes, and hell. And there's nothing more beautiful, is there? Nothing more glorious than the gospel of God. It teaches us then how we can live in thanksgiving to him. And so, the law used lawfully and not abused will produce in us then obedience. It works good things in our lives. And so I... I hope that you better understand this relationship of law and gospel. I hope that you today with the psalmist can say, oh, how love I your law. Because, dear friend, if you know the glorious gospel and the fullness of Scripture, then you also must love the law of God. For it is the revelation of his pure and holy and perfect character. And he has saved you to conform you then to that character. So then in your living, do not be careless. No, be strict with your lives. Strict, measuring them by the law of God. Not to make yourself acceptable to God. But because what else could you give to him than your life? The one who has done so much for you. Who so loved you that he gave his only begotten son for you. You give him your life. You give him your life as he has measured it and ordered it to walk according to the gospel, according to the law of God. Let us pray. We thank you, O holy God, that you've given us a holy law, a law that exposes us in our sin, drives us out of ourselves into the arms of Christ, a law that becomes a light to us in the gospel of how we can please you because we are in Christ. Teach us to love your law, but all the more to love you, holy and triune God, to love this glorious gospel. May it be the mark of our lives. May it be the mark of this congregation. And we pray for any here this afternoon, Lord, to whom the gospel is not yet glorious. 
that even now your spirit convicting them of the mess of their lives would bring them to find the glory of the gospel in Christ Jesus. In whose name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this sermon from Antioch Presbyterian Church. We are located in the historic Cashville community of Woodruff, South Carolina, near the intersection of South Carolina Highways 101 and 417. For more information about Antioch Presbyterian Church, please visit AntiochPCA.com.